Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Karneski. Brad Swift and I are co-hosting today's show. Today we have on Martin Mulvahill, the executive director of the Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry. He'll talk to us about the center's efforts to build a novel academic program and how he views sustainability in chemistry. Marty Mulvihill, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to have you talk about sustainability. And in my take on things, sustainability is fast becoming a cliche. So if you would spell out what you believe sustainability to be. Yeah, sustainability is a broad movement towards both dematerialization and transmaterialization. So looking at ways to use fewer resources to still meet the means of society such that future generations can also meet their needs. That comes from the Brundtland Report, which is the UN report, which back in 86 sort of defined sustainability. Sustainability includes a lot of different things, which much broader than any one discipline and even any one interdisciplinary center can really take on, in my opinion. At the Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry, my background and my current position, we really focus on a narrow part of sustainability, and that's the chemicals piece. How do we ensure that at the molecular level, the things we're building um, are more sustainable, i.e., don't use more resources than necessary and are safe for human health and the environment? The overarching goal for the center... How would you characterize that? And and you're the executive director of the center now, right? That's correct. We have, like many of the centers on campus, uh, three main purposes. The first is education. So we're teaching a number of graduate classes and are redoing the undergraduate laboratories in chemistry. So first and foremost, it's about bringing these concepts of sustainability and green chemistry to our students here at UC Berkeley. Secondarily, uh, as a research institution, we're very interested in pushing the bounds of green chemistry. So making the new materials, working with people to make safer materials, and understanding the broad consequences of chemicals within our environment and business supply chains such that we have better and safer chemicals for consumer use. That's the research piece. And the third piece, because this is applied and a big topic is about engagement. So that's working with both local NGOs, the California government, as well as uh, local businesses to take a look at how do we, beyond the walls of UC Berkeley, actually improve the chemical footprint, so to speak. Can you give us an example of a sustainable versus an unsustainable chemical process? Yeah, I'll give you an example of something that we're working on right now. So we don't necessarily have the more sustainable substitute at hand, but in the wake of the recent oil spills, 
we were taking a close look at what was used. What was the response? So first we have to characterize what are your options that are available? What are the technologies? In the case that dispersants, so something that's going to take that oil slick and turn it into small globules, are your only option, either because of concerns about the environment or concerns about the human health safety of the people cleaning up the oil spill, sometimes these really are your best option. You dig down another level, you talk to the folks in uh, toxicology, and you find out that the dispersants we use actually break down more slowly than the oil itself. So if you're going to add something to an oil slick, it seems like what you'd want is something that breaks down at least as fast as the oil you're trying to get rid of. Um, so again, we, we talk to our colleagues and we're characterizing this issue. So as chemists, we can think about how can we make something that breaks down more quickly. Additionally, you talk to your, our colleagues that have worked out in the Gulf and characterized the biological communities that actually break down this oil, you found that there are a couple strains of bacteria that are primarily responsible for that, and one of those strains of bacteria is adversely affected by the most commonly used oil dispersant. That's a problem. Again, if you want to clean up oil, and sometimes it's absolutely necessary to disperse it, you want to make sure that the things that are naturally going to break it down aren't going to be harmed by the thing you're using to disperse it. So with those design parameters in mind, the center is now seeking to create an oil dispersant that breaks down as quickly or more quickly than oil and is not toxic, hopefully to any aquatic life, but especially not to the aquatic life that's going to be primarily responsible for breaking down the dispersant and the oil that we're getting rid of in the first place. So that's a way of, in the past, you would have chemists just trying to create a molecule that effectively disperses oil. It's absolutely good goal, but it wasn't until other people took a look at what they created that you started understanding the environmental fate and the toxicology of these things. Now we have the knowledge up front. So I'm working with graduate students in toxicology and in chemistry to characterize this solution from beginning to end before we even claim that this is something that could be used out in the environment. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. We are speaking with Martin Mulvihill, the Executive Director of the Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry. The, the key thing to getting the center off the ground was getting buy-in from the College of Chemistry, the School of Public Health, College of Natural Resources, Haas School of Business, and the College of Engineering. So getting all of those folks at the table was actually probably the biggest challenge the center has so far met. Because you find that as the disciplines become you know, more and more focused and more and more advanced, their ability to communicate actually is lost a little bit. So understanding that a chemist doesn't advance in his field without making new products, while at the same time, a environmental scientist has a hard time advancing in his or her field if they don't actually characterize problems. Chemists don't like to hear about problems. Environmental scientists don't necessarily like to hear about the millions of new chemicals we want to make. So those discussions aren't, aren't necessarily as easy or as natural as we'd want them to be. But we're breaking those barriers down at Berkeley, and the people who break them down the most are actually the students because they aren't 
indoctrinated in one way of thought yet. So they naturally see the connection between making a chemical and understanding where it goes. It's really the, the people who've been trained for the longest have the hardest time breaking down those boundaries. So a, a bit of a generational issue. Yeah, it's absolutely. We view a generational shift in the way that we conceive of making and distributing chemicals and materials in our society. Mm-hmm. And what about the regulatory environment? I know that the European Union is very aggressive and the EPA has somewhat, California has always been very aggressive. How does that play in this with the industry and, and their costs and how they want to go forward. Yeah. The regulatory question is a very important one and is actually in some ways where UC Berkeley got its start. So since 2006, the folks in public health, especially Mike Wilson, Mike Schwartzman, they were both working actively with California legislation in this area and continue to work actively in this area. The regulatory piece, at least the way we see it is all about providing more information, more information to the marketplace and also more information to the consumer. So when you look at things like the REACH initiative in the European Union, what it's really asking for is information. If you produce chemicals at certain scales, you have to, as the scales increase, provide more and more information. The next step is going to be how do we figure out what to do with that information. And it is regulation that can create economic barriers or incentives to adoption of safer chemicals. So the California Green Chemistry Initiative is still in the phase of deciding what information we're going to ask for and then how are we going to promote changes to safer chemicals. Those discussions involve both industry folks academic folks, and NGO folks, they're happening in real time. So there's certainly difference of opinion there, but we're entering a phase of global chemical production where more information is going to become necessary and consumers, governments, and other folks are going to start asking for products that perform better environmentally. Is an international standard something that's conceivable or possible? Because what seems to happen is that developing countries create strict standards and then the companies just dump in the non-developed world or places that don't have any sort of regulatory framework. Yeah. Certainly from uh, my viewpoint, international action is is necessary because if you have different sets of economic and environmental drivers in different places, it's easy to game the system. I mean, we do have a a global chemical manufacturing system. It's already global, so they can easily move things from one place to another. I think that it's in the best interest of all of us in the end, all of the stakeholders, both individual consumers as well as the companies and the governments to do some coordination. Um, coordination of international policy is very tough. You sometimes run the risk of being pushed to the lowest common denominator. I think that's the, the danger of going that route. The first step and what I would like to see globally is at least some standard information requirements. So taking a look at what do you have to test for chemicals produced at what levels, 
based on where you're selling them. So you might be producing them somewhere else and you have to worry about all those uh, waste products and how they're being dealt with. But at least if you have a standard for a global standard for what information you have to test in order to sell it, does you no good to produce a chemical somewhere that you can't then sell back into the developed world. Uh, talk a little bit about your research in uh, nanotechnology. Yeah, so um, I've actually been at Berkeley a while, and my research as a graduate student was in nanotechnology, making new materials, mostly inorganic materials, that had some application for either the energy space or environmental uh, sensing space. So I, I was able to create a sensor for arsenic and groundwater. That was actually the project that got me excited about this more interdisciplinary approach to science and technology. After that, I did research on the fate of nanoparticles in the environment. So I went up to the national labs, um, Berkeley National Labs right up the hill behind campus and did a year-long postdoc in environmental science and material science characterizing the fate of nanomaterials in the environment. Because as we create all these new materials, it's important to take a life cycle approach, right? Understand both how, as a chemist, I can get the function that I want out of a new material, but also make sure that the end of life isn't going to create unfortunate, undesirable harms. So that's an exciting area of my own research where now that I have a better sense of the life cycle of nanomaterials, trying to apply some of that to water purification technology. So I still work with Ashok Gadgill, who's in environmental engineering and EETD at the labs, trying to create new, safer um, sorbents for mineral contamination in groundwater. So get rid of things like arsenic or excess fluoride. Nanoscience, then, could also have this kind of sustainability issue and push in its growing because this is a brand new science it's yeah i think nanoscience is a great case study take a look at green chemistry and nanoscience side by side they actually started around the same time and they have a lot of the same goals the goal of nanoscience really is to do more with less right let's take small materials that are well engineered to more efficiently produce energy. I mean, you look at what nanotechnology is being used for, it's a lot of it looks like the same things that green chemistry is trying to do. And in fact, folks are also already looking at the end of life issues around nanomaterials. I think it's a perfect example of how greater public awareness, greater awareness from the funding agencies is actually taking a more proactive approach to new chemical materials, nanomaterials being a large class of the new materials that we're producing. So you already have large centers throughout the country that are taking a look at what are the environmental implications of nanomaterials? What are the toxicological fates of new nanomaterials? It's actually a place where I think we're ahead of the historical curve. Are there still concerns and unknowns about nanomaterials? Absolutely. Are nanomaterials making it into consumer products? Yeah, they're just beginning to. I don't think they represent uh, a clear and present danger that's larger than any of the other chemicals that we're using. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. 
One exciting thing I'd just plug is that this May we're going to be having our second conference here on campus. So last March was our first kind of big open public conference and brought in people of representing all of these backgrounds and we're going to do that again this may so take a look at our website it's going to be on may 3rd here on campus so you know if you're interested in being involved always send me an email we have lots of opportunities take a look at our classes and consider coming to our conference in may and the conference is open to the students and community absolutely absolutely great and what's the website the website is bcgc.berkeley.edu. So, Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry, BCGC. Good. See you there. Excellent. Marty Mulvihill, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar that highlights some of the science and technology events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. The Audubon Society is hosting a winter bird count tomorrow, Saturday, January 28th. This is a free event open to families of all ages and sizes. Naturalists will lead a bird walk around Lake Merritt to discover and count wintered bird species such as ducks, cormorants, and herons. Meet at the lake, 600 Bellevue Avenue in Oakland. Dress warmly, Bring binoculars and field guides if you have them, but binoculars will be available to borrow. Bring water and a lunch. Please RSVP with the Golden Gate Audubon, ggaseducation at gmail.com or 510-508-1388. Or also visit www.goldengateaudubon.org for more information. Registration is open for She's Geeky Bay Area. This event runs January 27th, 28th, and 29th at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View. She's Geeky hosts unconferences across the U.S., providing a unique environment for women working in technology and other geeky fields, including science, engineering, and math, to learn from one another, grow networks, connect across generations, and discuss issues. Women attending She's Geeky events find inspiration and gain self-confidence to pursue or continue on STEM career paths because they are given the opportunity to present their work, often for the first time, discuss critical issues, and build peer networks for support. Visit www.she'sgeeky.org for more information. Producing natural gas from shale. Opportunities and challenges of a major new energy source. Mark Zobach is the Benjamin M. Page Professor of Geophysics at Stanford University. Mark conducts research on in-situ stress, fault mechanics, and reservoir geomechanics. He currently serves on the National Academy of Energy Committee investigating the Deepwater Horizon accident and the Secretary of Energy's Committee on Shale Gas Development and Environmental Protection. His presentation is Monday, January 30th at 4.15 p.m. on the Stanford University campus, Huang Science Center, and Vidya Auditorium. It is free and open to the public. Conversations at the Herbst, the power of gaming. On a planetary basis, we spend 3 billion hours a week playing video games. That's a lot of time. Enough to change our lives and probably save the world, the real world, while we're at it. 
author of Reality is Broken, Why Games Make Us Better and How They Can Change the World, Dr. Jane McGonigal, discusses her belief that video games can be a positive platform for exploration and problem-solving in our lives and for our planet. In conversation with Ryan Wyatt, director of the Morrison Planetarium, Tuesday, January 31st at 8 p.m. at the Herbst Theater, 401 Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco. Tickets start at $22. February's free Leonardo Art Center Evening Rendezvous, or LASER, will be on the 1st at Sanford University's Peugeot Hall, room 113. Networking begins at 645, and the talk starts at 7. Hear from artists Daniel Small and Luca Antonucci on First Light, their art based on the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Imaging Systems Portrait of the Visible Universe that reveals the first light from 13.5 billion years ago. Architect Anne Fogerson will present City of the Future. As of 2008, over 80% of land of the world that is suitable for raising crops is in use. Where will we find farmland we need? By 2040, 80% of the world's population will reside in urban centers pushing out into the neighboring agricultural land. How will we feed ourselves? Former NASA scientist Zan Gill will talk about collaborative intelligence and how evolution and natural systems can inform social problem solving. The night will conclude with artist Phil Ross's presentation on mycotecture. Fungi can be used to transform agricultural wastes into durable and low-impact materials at room temperature. The future is moldy. In this presentation, Phil will describe his research on growing a building out of living fungus. For more about the laser series, browse www.leonardo.info. The February Science Cafe presents Exploding Ant Brains, Mice Who Love Cat Piss and People Who Eat Too Much Cake, the hidden ways that microbes manipulate animal behavior. All animals live in close contact with microorganisms of all sorts. These microorganisms depend on animals for food, shelter, places to reproduce, etc. These microbes' lives are thus affected by ways in which the animal behaves, and many of these microbes have evolved ways to ensure that their hosts behave in ways that are good for them, often at the expense of the animals. Dr. Michael Eisen We'll talk about new work from his lab and elsewhere, looking at a variety of different ways in which microorganisms use chemical signals and targeted disruptions of cells in the nervous system to alter animal behavior. He will also touch on the ongoing battles over public access to the scientific literature. Michael Eisen is an evolutionary biologist at UC Berkeley and an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Science Cafe happens Wednesday, February 1st at 7 p.m., in the La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. You're listening to Spectrum on Calyx. And now for some science news headlines. Here's Brad Swift. Diesel truck emissions in Oakland fall sharply. In January 2010, the California Air Resources Board banned all 1993 and older drayage trucks from ports and rail yards statewide. They also ordered trucks built within the years 1994 to 2006 to install particle filters by the end of the year 2011. 
In a paper recently published in Environmental Science and Technology, UC Berkeley professor Robert Harley and co-authors Tim Dahlman and Tom Kirschstetter describe the process and the results of their monitoring truck exhaust at a section of highway near the Port of Oakland and the Oakland rail yards. They compared data they collected from November 2009 before the ban with data they collected from the same Oakland site in 2010 after the ban. The comparison found black smoke emissions were reduced by about half and the nitrogen oxide emissions dropped by 40%. Harley and his researchers will return to this section of highway several more times over the next two years as the remaining 2004 to 2006 truck engines are retrofitted with filters. They expect to study in greater depth the properties of emitted particulate matter. They will also examine more closely the chemical composition of the nitrogen oxide emissions to determine the split between nitric oxide and the nitrogen dioxide. This diesel emissions control program will go statewide to all trucks over the next several years, including trucks from out of state. Neuropsychopharmacologist David Nutt and colleagues at the Imperial College London wrote an article that was published in the January 23rd of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on how hallucinogens such as magic mushrooms work in the human brain. Fifteen people with previous history of psychedelic usage were injected with a small amount of psilocybin. This caused an immediate reaction that peaked within minutes and lasted for about an hour. This differed from those injected with saltwater placebo. Functional Magnetic resonance imaging brain scans before and after administration showed decreased blood flow activity through some regions of the brain. The result was found again with a new batch of 15 volunteers and through a different brain scan methodology that showed lower blood oxygenation in the brain. Specific areas affected included the posterior cingulate cortex and medial prefrontal cortex. Science News reports that Brian Roth, of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who was not involved with the study, remarked that they're the complete opposite of what had been predicted. They differ from earlier studies that use positron emission tomography. This work harkens back to an earlier headline we ran on Spectrum that reported that some hallucinogens and phenomena, such as synesthesia, may arise from a relaxing of some of the brain's filters. It may also help find drugs or derivatives to be used in the treatment of depression, cluster headaches, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and other conditions that are linked to too much brain activity. For the first time ever, stem cells from umbilical cords have been converted into other types of cells, which may eventually lead to new treatment options for spinal cord injuries and multiple sclerosis, among other nervous system diseases. James Hickman a University of Central Florida bioengineer and leader of the research group, says, We're very excited about where this could lead because it overcomes many of the obstacles present with embryonic stem cells. The main challenge in working with stem cells is figuring out the chemical or other triggers that will convince them to convert into a desired cell type. Hedvika Davis, a postdoctoral researcher in Hickman's lab, was able to transform umbilical stem cells into oligodendrocytes, critical structural cells that insulate nerves in the brain and the spinal cord. There are two main options the group hopes to pursue through further research. The first 
is that the cells could be injected into the body at the point of a spinal cord injury to promote repair. The other possibility for the Hickman team's work relates to multiple sclerosis and similar nervous system diseases. The music you heard today was from Losana David, self-release album, Folk and Acoustic. It is released under the Creative Commons Attribution License version 3.0. Spectrum was recorded and edited by me, Rick Karneski, and by Brad Swift and Mark Taylor. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.